0: If you don't remember what Prop 8 is, you just wait one second while I look for it on my phone. Okay. Hey kids, welcome to You Save My Life, a podcast where we're going to be flipping through the annals of queer theory and traveling through time and space collecting anecdotes, Relics and visions that shape our queer present and break ground on our queer futures. My name is Phoenix Danger. Uh, I am your host. And when my therapist asked me yesterday what I do for fun, um, I told him that I read queer theory. So here we are. So today, um, today we're going to be talking about a pretty, a pretty elusive pretty elusive topic. Um, We're going to be talking about neoliberalism, which is a word. (laughs) It's a word. Today we're going to be talking about neoliberalism, which is a word that you have almost certainly heard before. It's a really, it's a really slippery concept, uh, which is why I think it's important to do, um, to do today's episode on this topic, because pretty much, everything that I'm, you know, like, everything that I'm going to be recording uh, or everything that I'm going to be reading and, like, speaking about um, after this episode is, and actually before this episode, um, sort of, like, is infused with um, these ideas of, like, neoliberalism as a structure that we are um, existing in. What is neoliberalism? No one knows. Well, hopefully... um, you and I will both know by the end of this episode when we finally do understand what neoliberalism is. Um, we can impress our professors in our classes. Um, we can get into fights on the internet with a different framing. We can. Um, what else can we do? We can insult someone. We can call them a neoliberal shill. Um, and so if all these things sound exciting to you, then um, you should probably, uh, you know, keep the headphones in. So today we're going to be working with the works of Dr. Yasmin Nair, who is the co-founder of the organization Against Equality, which we'll get into a little bit later. I, I discovered uh, Yasmin Nair's work when I was about 18 or 19, so I guess I would probably be, um, in 2009. Uh, it was my freshman year of college, uh, so I was having a lot of fun, um, I was, you know, it was my first time, you know, like, I had, I had come out to a few people in high school, but knew that, like, once I got to college, like, I was just gonna be, like, out, 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 like, everyone's gonna know it, like, as soon as they see me, you know, like, I just wanted to be, like, I'm fucking gay, and I'm, like, living, and, that 's good and fun, so besides like yeah, besides um going to the gay clubs, having the gay friends uh, smoking the gay cigarettes on the quad, um, there was also, of course, um, especially at this time, a um, a big a big political event that a lot of if not all of the gays I knew on campus. We're talking and thinking about, and that was Prop 8. Prop 8 had reached the Supreme Court, uh, and the Supreme Court was going to basically decide if banning same sex marriage um, was constitutional or unconstitutional. This was, I mean, no, okay, I'm not gonna go into it. So, constitutional or unconstitutional, you know, this was for a lot of us for for a lot of us in my friend group and like even like the the queer people who were outside of my friend group something that we that many 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 of us had in common um was that we were concerned about the future of gay marriage and we felt like not only we were i mean we weren't just concerned about it right we were moved i or I will just speak for myself i was moved by it i felt like it really spoke to you know, who I felt like I was as, um, as, you know, like an oppressed gay person. Um, and I felt like protests were a way for me to be visible and be angry. Um, maybe not as much at, you know, at Prop 8 as I was by, like, the people who bullied me in school or, like, the fear of coming out to my parents. You know, like, of course, I was... I mean, I guess, yeah, whatever. You know, I was... I I, I did feel oppressed um, by Prop 8, and I also knew that it would be... Like, if it were deemed unconstitutional, it would also be um, an invalidation of the way that I saw myself existing um, in the world because I remember... When I was, like, coming out to myself, marriage, not being able to get married, um, was something that felt really sad for me. Because even though, um, even though growing up, I never imagined myself getting married, even when I was, like, quote-unquote straight, I felt like, I felt like my identity could be so easily invalidated. Because I, because in in, in my mind, at the time, um, it was, like, you know, the thing that has the most visibility will, um, will validate my reality, and so, um, so yeah, I don't know, I mean, like, I spent a lot of time on the National Mall, because I went to school uh, in Washington, D.C., and, you know, like, the scale, the scale that protests can get to in Washington, D.C. is, like, pretty intense, like, they have the whole National Mall, the Supreme Court is there, like, um, there 's like a lot of places to gather for like there 's a lot of places for like young college students to gather um, along with other like other folks um, and you know and protest whatever seemed relevant that day. And so, yeah, I don't know. I felt like I had a feeling of being a part of history um, because yeah, I had a feeling of being a part of history. I had a feeling at the same time, ironically, of rebellion. I often my signature sign that I carried said um, two, four, six, eight. How do you know your kids are straight? Which like, what the fuck does that have to do with marriage anyway? But you know, and I think so that speaks to the idea that, like, I just really wanted to be gay in the street. You know, like, I just wanted to be able to talk to – I just wanted to be able to talk about it finally. At some point in my political development, I came across this blog – no, I think – yeah. I came across this website called The Balerico Project – Um, I don't, I don't know if any of you remember it. Like, I don't know how, uh, how popular this site was. So, I mean, feel free to let me know because I actually am really curious and I have no idea how I found it. Um, but the Bolerico Project, um, was a, um, was a blog for basically progressive to radical, progressive to radical, um, queer writers and Yasmin Nair was one of the people who I read regularly on this site, and she was the first um the first radical queer person I ever read to sort of give you an idea of what her her work is like you know Yasmin Nair's work is centered around neoliberalism. Um, and like more specifically, neoliberalism neo- and the way that um, that it affects uh, that it affects queer movements. And if you're wondering, hey, you still haven't defined neoliberalism yet. Um, yes, I'm aware of that. We're gonna get to it. I promise. Sit tight. Um, so I'm so I'm just gonna read you. Um, I'm gonna read you a an excerpt from a blog that she wrote in 2009 as. As things were really picking up around the Supreme Court, um, this piece is called Prop 8 is a Distraction. Or, now can we dump gay marriage as a cause? So, okay, so she's speaking about um, benefits that come with marriage, like with the institution of marriage. What about those who are excluded from those benefits simply because they're not married? And here's the basic question Why should marriage guarantee any benefits that aren't available to those who don't want to marry? Why why you build up the power of the state to coerce people into marital relationships that they don't want just so that they can get the basics like health care. Marriage has, for too long now, been held up as the only solution to a host of problems, including lack of health care. The fight for gay marriage in granting that institution so much importance is slowly eroding the possibility that the rest of us might get rights and benefits without marrying each other. Mm. Okay. the fight over gay marriage has emerged as a progressive cause that all progressive straights should join in when in fact it's a deeply conservative movement that strips our movement of any imagination instead of asking for one way to grant rights and benefits we ought to be advocating for a multiplicity of options let's dump marriage now Um, so obviously this was extremely shocking to me as like, you know, (laughs) as someone who like basically thought that we were going to reach the end of history by, um, by allowing gay people to marry. Uh, I basically had no idea what the hell she was saying. However, I just am a particularly curious person. And so I kept reading their work. I kept, um, I kept visiting the Llerico project and, I sort of like started to get a sense for where this type of politic was coming from, um, even though I like wasn't familiar enough with it to to sort of like articulate or speak on it or like sort of understand that marriage was caught up in a much much larger system of capitalism. And I remember one night, I think, uh, I think I was getting back from getting back from the club uh from the gay club obviously uh with my friend luna and we were just like hanging out all drunk in my room in my dorm room and um i had had this human rights campaign magnet on my mini fridge and luna just got up and picked it off the fridge and tore it up into pieces and threw it in my garbage and said you'll thank me later um so thank you (laughs) <laughs> Luna, um, I don't know if you're listening, but thank you. Uh, I am thanking you now. Mm, if you're wondering why the uh, the human rights campaign, the HRC, is something that I would be opposed to, that's because they are, I think, a very single-minded organization. They're also, um, and they're also, you know, I feel like their main their main thing is ensuring inclusion of queer people in institutions that are inherently oppressive to queer people. And so um, they were really big. um, They're like, I mean, like, it was like the entire gay marriage movement was like sponsored by the HRC. You know, like that's what it felt like because like the equality sign was everywhere. The problem is, is that like a lot of their a lot if not all of their goals are in fact neoliberal goals themselves um and so you know I, so, <laughs> so I think now now is the time where um now is the time where we're gonna finally figure out what neoliberalism is Uh, And then also I'm going to give you some examples because I think that neoliberalism is explained actually best through examples, which is why it's extremely difficult to come across like a like a succinct definition. All right. So, you know, I thought about it. I thought about it. And I think I think uh, I think the best definition, you know, my like one sentence spiel is that neoliberalism is an all encompassing ideology uh, that prioritizes the growth of business and commerce above everything else. And so it's like, okay, so it's like, it's a political ideology. um, It's a political project. It is, um, it is, uh, it's an economic structure. Um, It is, yeah, and it's like, it's an economic structure. Um, A lot of what it's based around is the idea that the free market So and so what what it centers around a lot of the time is the idea of competition and competition being um, sort of like the most important value in uh, in like Western capitalist values. And so some things include um, like some parts of it include um, deregulation. So that is the government like being able to have fewer regulations on uh like regulations and limitations on um basically like how big business can get how um, how much they can make how how big business can um, do manufacturing in other countries, how big business doesn't have to pay their employees like like keeps the minimum very low um, you may you may recognize this um, from I guess. Uh, I guess what what we learned uh, in like eighth grade and in every in every <laughs> like high school class after that uh, laissez faire economics, uh, and that basically just means that corporations can do what they want without interference from the government. In addition to that, it also places a heavier emphasis on the individual and the in- individual's ability to succeed or survive or thrive um you know Sort the the idea is if um if you're rich that was all you baby like that wasn't that wasn't your parents that wasn't your school that wasn't um like that wasn't your freedom to not work um your that was your freedom to not have to work when you were younger because um because you had to Like contribute to the household income yeah and so it's like it's like none of or it's like oh none of these factors around like race or class um, or I guess gender right Um, contributed to your success like you did that all by yourself and on the flip side of that um, is the idea that if you're poor that's also your fault Um, it's not about it's not about bad schools. It's not about. Um, it's not about living in food deserts. It's not about having, like, having your inter- education interrupted because you have to work um, to survive. Um, it's not the degradation of the welfare state uh, in supporting people who are basically like made poor by like capitalism and racism. Um, it's just, it's just your fault. Like, it's just your fault. Um, And it's because you couldn't, like, it's because you couldn't compete. It's like you didn't have what it takes to compete. And I think, I think probably what the most dangerous thing, uh, I mean, neoliberalism is extremely dangerous, but I think one of the most dangerous things is that neoliberalism is practically invisible. You know, the, we don't, we very rarely name it. Neoliberalism and, like, neoliberal structures are particularly insidious because, I mean, because they're hard to define, right? Um, And because not only are they hard to define, or, like, not only is it hard to define, but also neoliberalism is extremely, extremely pervasive in... um, in, in our society. It's like it it feels like it almost doesn't need to be named because like once you name it, you like kind of see all this like neoliberalism like horrifyingly popping up. But like politicians won't name it. Um liberals, liberals won't name it. I mean I guess conservatives won't name it either, right? Basically like anyone in the mainstream uh politics will not be like, you know, like no one's no one's gonna be running a political campaign like on the platform of destroying neoliberalism actually give me one second i need to fact check that and make sure bernie sanders didn't say anything what okay hold on i think i found something interesting what wow that was really fucking bizarre (laughs) uh okay yes it seems that bernie sanders has not spoken uh closely about neoliberalism thank you it's it's not not only is it not spoken about but it's also neoliberalism is also posited as um as normal as natural as inevitable even um and that is sort of like coming off the idea that um that like it's inevitable because capitalism is inevitable um or like that at least that's the thinking behind it um when i was when i was doing some when i was doing some re- research for this and i i did have to do my homework on this a lot um when i was when i was researching this um i was i was trying to look up the um the difference between neoliberalism and and late capitalism and um what i found is that there's actually very little difference when i talk about late capitalism um what i'm saying is that what i'm describing is that where where we are in capitalism right now um which is in an extremely extremely advanced stage where it's not only um that the um like the it's not only that the rich are in possession of capital and um and sort of like rule over production while all of the workers you know get screwed out of um know get screwed out of wages um it's like it's not just that it's like much 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 bigger than that for yeah so for example you know at um at the time of peak capitalism ceos were only making about 20 to 25 times more than their um than an average employee's salary late capitalism has advanced to the point where ceos are now making 300 times more than the average worker Um, and it just feels like that's how it's supposed to be right Um, it just feels like oh of course like they're creating jobs like they deserve to make 300 times more than like anyone who um, is doing the work to actually support the business and so that like that's one example that's one example of neoliberalism um, i 'm going to give you a couple more um, okay another example is um, another example is the trend of girl bosses um, which maybe you haven 't heard that word in a couple of months, and if so i 'm sorry for bringing it back to you um, but sort of the idea that if if a company is run by a woman, then that company and that person are explicitly feminist people, and that is just not true. Um, what that what that is is that, um, like basically, it's more. It's like basically, it basically means that women are now included in the machinery of creating uh, and manipulating capital um whereas before they weren't and so like now that women have the power to oppress people um that is you know it gives some people a fake semblance of um of equality and yeah as we learned from like as we learned from the the scandal around things where uh where their employer or sorry where their ceo was um like touching people inappropriately or making like inappropriate comments around other like like women employees bodies um when she was uh okay this one like i feel like is made up but it's complete like it, it feels like something that would be made up but it's completely true um that she would skype in to meetings from the toilet she's sitting on the toilet computer on her lap talking to her employees and who did not consent to this Um, and right so basically what I'm saying is that um, just because you're a woman it doesn't mean uh, or like just yeah just because you're a woman it doesn't mean that you support feminist ideals or that you support um, liberation Um, it just it just means that you're now included um, in the upper classes of capitalism and then let me see let me give you one more let me give you one more so another example of neoliberalism and or late capitalism is um is is increased antagonism towards labor and unions of course corporations do not want uh workers to unionize um you know if you're a boss or a manager or an owner or fucking i don't know i don't know what people who are into capitalism uh, <laughs> i don't know what their titles are um but anyway if you're any of those things you're you're opposed to Worker power like you're just systemically Opposed to worker power and like that Is just true that is just structurally True and so Where we are Where we're at now with um, You know with Labor and neoliberalism is that uh, We now have right to work states which sounds which sounds great to be honest like um when you just like hear like right to work you're like great i can i have the right to work or whatever um but what it actually is um is like what it's actually saying is that if there is a union in your workplace and you don't want to join them um you don't have to and that also seems like, whatever, not the worst thing in the world. But it is dangerous. It is dangerous because um, in the same workplace, you can have people who are union and non-union. And, like, owners and managers will, will like, aggressively practice union busting where they convince workers that unions are evil and that they're stealing your money. And um, when, in fact, um, labor... Labor organizations, unions are are nonprofits, so that's, that's literally not possible. Um, and basically, like turn people like violently anti-union um, with the hopes that this this affect will spread spread through the workplace and will basically like destroy the collective bargaining power of unions, so that everyone is working as an individual. Rather than part of um, a unit or a community, right? And and like as as these individuals, it's only it's only our fault if we if we get fired or we're not being paid enough. Like it's just natural. Like that's just the way it is. Um, it's sort of like what neoliberalism claims. And so you know, uh, we're obviously weaker as individuals than we are as a collective um and so the goal of union busting is to break up the collective so that individuals can be exploited all right so let's talk about yasmin nair so the book that we're reading today is called against equality queer revolution not mere inclusion and um you know, this is sort of like a book of ideologies and arguments um, against the idea that queer people should, like, that queer people benefit from the status quo. And Against Equality is also the organization that, um, that Nair and Conrad had co-founded. Um, and basically, like, this, this book is a collection of the organizations, the organization's ideas. Um, so we're reading we're reading three essays today um, on topics that I've like pretty much touched on a little bit uh, when talking about what what neoliberalism is. Um, so we're going to start with the first essay, uh, which is called "Against Equality, Against Marriage." In this essay, Nayer talks about the liberal linear narrative. That, um, that is painted around like basically, yeah, that mm, narrative around queer, (laughs) around queer liberation, which, um, of course, if you are using the framework of liberation through participating in state institutions, like it's not actually liberation but it was very much framed as something like that around this time and by the way this was published in um in 2011 and I think it's really interesting how much has changed since then and also how much has not changed since then and so that is to say that like some of the language is by this point actually like actually outdated um, or or not the most not the most precise. Uh, for instance, th- the word queer didn't come up in any of the three readings that I saw, um, and I think that that was around the time where people were still arguing over whether or not queer people should be using the word queer. Um, but obviously, we see who won that one. But then it's also about things that are extremely relevant to us right now um which is basically like the neoliberalization of queer movement. And so the uh the narrative that the narrative that Nair identifies is that like is kind of like the way that straight people and like probably a lot of or at least some gay people um viewed Uh, viewed gay history which was basically like all right so it's the beginning of time until about the 70s that um that gay people just don't exist like people just like feel like yeah that gay people just like don't exist and like that's how it's um that's how it's framed it's like not acknowledged gay people obviously exist but um but for the the framework that these people are working in is that gay gay and lesbian people did not exist in like a meaningful way until um until stonewall uh the stonewall riots and in uh in 1969 um and then in 1970 where um where on the anniversary of uh of the riots the first gay pride parade took place in new york city so it's the 70s everyone's gay. Uh, and then it's the 80s where um, where queer communities and, like, particularly communities of gay men are, like, are coping with HIV-AIDS on just, like, a massive fucking scale. Um, and so the thinking is that, like, okay, the 80s were traumatic. Parts of the 90s were traumatic in this way. So what... What gays are doing now is um, sort of like perpetuating respectability. So, like the opposite of what gay promiscuity is is gay monogamy and like gay marriage and gay respectability and like we're just like you, except we're gay. And so that's kind of where we where where we start moving into um, when we start moving into the liberalization uh, or the neoliberalization of of queer politics. And so um, I am going to read you um, a quote from this essay, which says that um, gay marriage is seen as the core of a new kind of privatized and personal endeavor, the rights of LGBT individuals to enter into a private contract this ignores the fact that the US is the only major industrialized nation to tie so many basic benefits like healthcare to marriage. Gay marriage advocates are fond of pointing to Norway or Canada as prime examples of countries where gay marriage is legal, um, as examples to emulate. They ignore one basic fact in all these countries, citizens were guaranteed rights like healthcare long before they legislated marriage. So what they're doing here is reframing what what should be and and what was a populist uh populist feminist uh leftist view of um of as access to visit your partner or your friend uh who's dying of AIDS um in the hospital so what neoliberalism does is tie what should be universal rights um to marriage which obviously isn't the end game uh for everyone and part of the reason that they do this one is to again sort of like incorporate queer people into the status quo and um they're also focusing on the family one because it's like uh and sorry when i say they i i think i'm uh, when i say they i mean um i mean like progressive or like liberal organizations working for equality uh and so what we're talking about is like these organizations like right the hrc which we said earlier um the national lgbtq task force um we're we're looking at glad um and you know what let's throw this in we're looking at the log cabin republicans aka gay republicans um and these organizations really frame frame marriage as a leap into modern times um where it's like before we were oppressed and now we're not because we have marriage and so it's like not only a leap into modernity it's a leap into morality like attempts and attempts to make um to make gay people seem palatable or normal or or as i said um just like just like straight people, and I think that I personally think that something like marriage um sort of like reclaims or reframes um those who participate in marriage um frames them in, in a new innocence, you know it's saying like uh, they're not those gay people who are engaging in public sex, who are engaging in promiscuity, um, who are engaging in anti-capitalist endeavors. It's not. It's not those. It's not those gay people who who deserve. You know, who deserve all of the oppression um, piled onto them. No. It's it's um it's sterilized. It's sterilized queerness, and then it's also like presenting marriage as like not only as a victory, but in fact as a solution. Um, and so, like, and not only the solution, but the solution, um, for, for queer people to access, um, access benefits. And, you know, that, I mean, like, that is an extremely coercive system. Um, it's like, I mean, it's like basically forcing, um, I mean, whatever. Okay. Some people, some gay people want to get married and like have gotten married and like stuff like that. Yes, we know that. Um, but for everyone else, it becomes this coercive power dynamic where it's, it's like, it's like a threat almost. It's like, if you, if you don't get married, then you cannot survive, uh, or you cannot survive easily. Um, and the reason, the reason for another reason for this is that, um, the, is that the family is like the nuclear, the nuclear family now gay or straight because they're, we're equal, equals in neoliberalism, the family is the um is the core economic unit and the core unit of reproduction and so right and like and not only like reproduction like literal like having neoliberal spawn um but also in um i mean yes <laughs> um but all, like basically like not only in producing children as like a future generation um but in fact like producing producing children um who are going to be indoctrinated into neoliberalism who are going to be indoctrinated into capitalism and who will sort of like perpetuate this um like this cycle Mm, it's not really a cycle yes it is okay um Perpetuate this cycle of capitalism, like, of boom and bust, um, who will grow up with values that are in line with, um, that are in line with capitalism, um, that reproduce capitalism, that, um, yeah, that basically just, like, that basically prepares young people to be citizens of the world through, through... The desire to participate in capitalism and to succeed in capitalism and to um yeah and to build capital so now your touches on um another another claim that's made about um that's made about gay marriage, which is that is that there was this idea that you know if that teen if that queer or gender non-conforming teen was um being harassed in school um if potentially like killed themselves from harassment like or potentially like killed themselves um because they couldn't bear like the harassment and the violence and the shame um that it is uh one it's their fault it's their fault for um, for being non-conforming in any way, um, it's it's um, uh, sort of like death and suffering, are, are punishments, for not participating in gender roles, and so like yeah, for not participating in gender roles, like for not, and for not engaging in, not engaging in, heterosexuality, um, and so the idea that liberals and like neoliberals had was that um if only these young queer people could see people getting married and these young straight people can see gay people getting married, um they can kind of internalize the idea that um that gay people are safe and that um and that gay people are normal and so that they um and so like when they see gay people are normal like them uh they won't bully these uh these these queer kids and and obviously that is not true. Um it wasn't true in 2011 it's not true today. You know like bullying in schools like we have a lot of gay marriage as as a country. We have we have lots of gay marriage. Um and that that's not stopping. That's not stopping almost any violence, I would say, um, against, uh, against queer and or trans people um, and or people who do not desire, who do not desire to be a part of the institution of marriage. And, you know, like, that fucking sucks. Like, that sucks. Um, especially because gay liberation was founded on, like, feminist and leftist principles um, and anti-capitalist principles. Um, and now what is seen as liberation is actually just, is just, like, a very boring version of uh, of inclusion. So the next thing that we're going to talk about is immigration. I, th- I thought this was really interesting because what Nair sort of like almost centers this essay around is um, is American apparel and um, in particular their legalized gay shirts Um, part of part of the problem with I mean there's like a couple of problems with this Um, one is the idea that um, you can uh, like participate or advertise your oppression by Mm, by participating in capitalism by like buying this shirt um by supporting this company that mm, claims to be worker friendly but actually isn't um and then part of why she brings this up as problematic is because um being gay isn't like actually illegal it's just <laughs> it's just not um even when like even when people are struggling for marriage it like just because like gay marriage wasn't legal, it's it doesn't mean that gay gay people uh aren't legal. So she asked the question who who is illegal here? Uh and I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little piece for you. Um so Nayer says the legalized gay t shirts provides more than a catchy slogan for the marriage equality movement. The words serve to first perpetuate a fiction of illegality uh, we are to assume that gay is now illegal, and then yoke marriage to both a domestic history of civil rights battles and the contentious issue of immigration. The specious connection to marriage is easy to locate while the one to immigration is more complicated, but both are made in equally problematic ways so basically, like what Nair is sort of like almost picking a fight with here is that um It's sort of like that the whole concept of legalized gay is, like, extremely hypocritical and, like, also kind of makes no fucking sense Um, because, you know, we have to ask the question, like, who is actually illegal here? Like, who is being explicitly called illegal? And that is people who are immigrants Um, and that is people who are like working in the American apparel factory and the American apparel factory who also um, complied when ICE raided their factories to round up undocumented workers Um, like that. That is what it means to be quote unquote illegal. It doesn't mean that you're like wearing a shirt and like you get to be smug and self-satisfying. And self-satisfied for being w- what you view as persecuted. And so, you know, this, like, immigration is, one, particularly relevant right now. And two, also, also like, really fucked up because um, because of, like, the main channels that Or, like, because of, like, two particular channels that, like, queer people can work through. And one of those is marriage, which we talked about already. And the other one is the military. Um, And so, sort of, like, because a lot of immigrants and queer immigrants, um, because it's, like, fucking impossible to get your papers, two shortcuts to immigration are one, marriage, and two, yes, okay, and two, joining the military. And so, sort of, like, as we can see here, if you are poor... If you're an immigrant, um, if you are, um, if you're a trans person, if you're a gender non-conforming person, it's basically either assimilate or die, Um, and not just die from like a lack of resources, um, but also die from like state-sanctioned violence, Um, also die, also die by killing themselves, also die in the battlefield of a neoliberal war um uh so that's all the time we have today i hope that you i mean like i guess i hope that you enjoyed it i also kind of like hope that you're horrified so there's that today i'm gonna be closing with ca conrad's uh poem saturn one butterfly on a tissue box not a real one a painting a monarch one more sign for anguish poured and poured, a choice to feel or stack bricks between. I was sad when my talented friends started designing television commercials. He told me to grow up, but the rocks in the desert I touch signal an endless new place, something, something without money, saying, never tire of demanding love for this world. Thank you for listening.